This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, we sit down with former Hampshire cricketer and now coach, Jimmy Adams. He reflects on his playing career and how specific coaches really supported him on his journey, the psychological challenges in cricket and the importance of a player not limiting themselves, as well as players being confident and comfortable in executing a game plan. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So first of all, listen, Jimmy, really appreciate you giving up a bit of time. I know um, this time of the year for you guys is kind of all systems go, but um, how are things? Are you are you all good your end? Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me. Uh, yeah, everything's well this end. Uh, we, we've come off a disappointing weekend. We we got so close and, and snatched defeat from the jaws of victory up at Edgebaston in the first semi of the T20. Um but we've come a long way in that competition. And from where we were halfway through, I think all the boys should be very proud of what they've achieved. And we've got a big week coming up. The guys are up at Liverpool this week. If they win, there's a very, very good chance that they'll win the title for the first time in a long time, 40-something years, I think it is. But from a, on a personal side, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm done. My role is second team. We had our last game finish at the end of last week. So I'll, I'll, be, I'll be watching the live stream from afar and, I see if I get to Liverpool in good time, if it looks like we might get on the right side of it with the right result. Perfect. So obviously for me personally, I um being a Hampshire boy, I, I've kind of tracked I guess your progress in terms of a player and then been fortunate enough through some contacts at, at Southampton to have you come in and speak to us in terms of um your, your transition away from playing side into coaching, etc. But for people that maybe aren't as familiar in terms of you and, and your background, et cetera. Do you just want to explain kind of, I guess, your initially playing career and, and then what that's transitioned into now? Sure. I'll try and keep it brief. Um, so I've, I've, been, I've grown up and been a Hampshire boy all my life, played in the age groups. When it, back in the days, it was Hampshire schools. Um, and it's, it's, it's moved forward on that front now and I think it's a bit more streamlined and and better equipped for the development of, of youngsters. Um, I got my first contract when I was 19, or started in 2000, and had two poor years, got nudged towards university, unfortunately when the university system was well-funded for on the cricket side. Had three years there where cricket kicked on, came back to Hampshire and, and started, started performing, I suppose. It was Plenty of ups and downs, as there usually is, but generally went really well and then had a massive form dip in 2008. Um, But luckily was backed by the coach at the time, which was Giles White. He he took over the team in 2008. Um, Having been second team coach, he backed me in and he he recommended me to go and see a coach in Perth in Australia. And and that really tipped tipped things. I, I hit it off with this guy and found what he was talking about at that time very pertinent to where I was with my career and came back from there and had probably the best best period of my career 2009 2010 um 
and then was fortunate enough to take on the captaincy at Hampshire in 2012. And I suppose we, you know, we did okay and I did okay for a few years and, and then I found the captaincy very draining. Uh, handed in, had sort of let that go back, came back into the ranks of, of the, the group and had a couple more years, but by then my batteries were pretty, pretty empty in terms of, um, I suppose that the drive needed every day to keep keep trying to perform. So I retired in 2018 and have been lucky enough after just a short window of uncertainty, I've been lucky enough to pick up a coaching role at the club as well. And I'm now coached the second 11 um, at Hampshire and spend a bit of time in the first team now and again, but mostly the second team. And it's been great fun, been really interesting, learning lots. And and then this year had a, the fortune of, of being an assistant coach with the, with the Southern Brave in the 100 competition, which was an amazing experience. So, you know, probably the first time I've been outside of the Hampshire bubble, uh, working with a few different people, with different players. So that was fascinating and hopefully get another chance to do that next year. Perfect. I mean, there's loads of really interesting bits there and uh, we'll try and cram as much into the hour and a bit we've got. Um, but let's kind of go in reverse to start off with. So obviously a lot of athletes, um, when they talk about that transition away from the game, do do find it challenging, a change of identity, kind of going from a player to then something else. Um, how was that transition for you? Um, and what initially drew you to the coaching side when that, that was something that you kind of got into? Um, yeah, good question. I'd, I'd been coaching on and off during the winters for quite some time. I started with a bit of, um, I suppose, private work uh, alongside helping out with eight junior age groups, the Hampshire junior um, age groups, and, and then the Hampshire Academy at times. So I had... I'd been trying to work, get some experience in that area, work through some of the coaching badges or levels. Um, so I, I had a good idea that coaching was something I wanted to, to get into. And Hampshire had been very supportive with, with offering the opportunities during, those, during the winters. Um, so from that sense, I was quite lucky with the transition. I, I had three months maybe where I, I didn't know what I was going to do and, and, and I was hoping and holding out that there might be a role um, so from that side I, I, I really was fortunate but I, I, I sort of had been putting the feelers out and, and starting to, to nudge towards that um, or nudge that direction Perfect so obviously you mentioned there in terms of the, the jump and stuff did was there any particular succession planning you were doing when you were working with the younger age groups or was it more just a case of, you know, isn't something you can do alongside your, your play inside? I think that the nature of the cricket seasons or the season is that, is that it fits quite well with, with allowing you to pick up off um, out of season work experience, whether that be in cricket or, or in another field. So I, it, it was quite a, a clear path for me, having, having been influenced very heavily by, by coaches throughout my career and, and the help that I'd received. Wanting, I certainly had a feel that I wanted to, to try and replicate that or give something back uh, if I could. I had no idea whether I was 
going to be anywhere near capable of, of being able to influence people the way that I'd, I'd had influence or had been influenced. So I started with the, I remember working with the 13s. Uh, they would do little batting batting groups, me and Will Smith, or um, as Will Smith, we used to do batting sessions for a couple of the batters from, from the 12s, 13s, 14s that had been being picked out as maybe maybe being high potential and, and almost rewarding them with a with a, an extra batting session a week. Um, and then as I suppose as experience grew and, and my understanding of how uh, they talk about coaching philosophy. The the coaching philosophy, I had no idea. When we first sat down in level three and they spoke about coaching philosophy, I, I had no idea what they what they really wanted or what I wanted. Uh, a lot of mine was based around my own experience and the people that I had had um, or I'd learned from both from a playing side and, and from a coaching side. And so I was, it was quite important to get that experience and find out about myself and find out about how, how I saw my coaching. And that did help level three, the, the coaching course there and, the, and just recently done level four where I found out even a huge amount more about myself and others. I think that that started to shape how, how I was so I was while I had experience as a coach through through working in those age groups which was great I, I certainly didn't know myself as as a as a coach so I think my, as my plan developed I I realized that coaching was much more than, than me throwing some balls to someone to see if they could hit a, a drive or play a pull shot whereas when I started it was all about that it was all about the technical can they do this and I suppose there is an important aspect of the basic skills element and learning, but how I delivered it and, and how they learned, I had no idea about. And that and that's been a real um, a real learning for me over the last three, four years, I suppose, about about the best or how I can improve my ability to help people if I if I if indeed I can, although there's other people the best people to ask for that. But I, I sense that. If I look back at where I was in 2012, the winters I did there, coaching is a very different um, approach now to that I would take with even with the same the same under 12s, under 13s. It would be a, I would approach it very differently. So, if someone was to ask you that question now and say, "What is your coaching philosophy?" and I know this is banded around a lot of sports, a lot of different ways. What would you say? What would you answer that question with? Well, I think I think it's different for. Um, almost the level that you're you're coaching at. Um, I mean, that's that's very typical answer for me in the sense that I, I, I'm well known for sitting on the fence. But I've been lucky enough to to work with professional or close to professional academy level, and I think a lot of that is is about players working out themselves and us helping them do that and nudging them in the right direction, trying to empower them I suppose and, and almost if we get our job do our job well and help them to the point then then almost we become redundant because they start to to work it out themselves and then they come to us with questions as to how leading into that it's a, it's probably a little bit more tell and a little bit more directed um and trying to trying to give them the knowledge i suppose to help them make those make decisions that as as they get older and more experienced that they they can start to ask themselves or coach themselves a bit 
But my philosophy now, when I'm working with the pros, is is very much about the person. Um, trying to trying to find a way to stop myself and others, and then and themselves individually limiting themselves, um, playing to their strengths, understanding what their their weaknesses are. But really, the mental side of the game in cricket is would be a, a huge aspect of that. And so I spend I'd spend a lot of time trying to create a relationship and rapport with players. So they're able to open up about what what stuff might be might be limiting them. So there's something like a um, I saw a really nice um, or read a really nice um, a phrase I suppose not even a phrase almost an equation that that was um, performance equals um, skill minus noise or, or talent minus noise and that noise being internal external noise and self talk or stuff that influences from from the outside and I think in cricket where there is a lot of time to be inside your own head that that when people start to realize the the power that for good and and for negative i suppose um the positive and the negative side of of the mental game and how that can help you um that would, so that'd be a huge part of of i'm not particularly well trained in psychology by any stretch but i'm 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 just about to try and start start along that path um that'd be a big part that'd be my primary area is 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 the person and then building the the cricket skills around that um yeah something you really interested there is people limiting themselves what what do you mean by that my sense is and and you asked a really good question earlier about about my own experiences and and how that might be sort of bias in there and this would definitely be a, a an adam's bias is that i my self-talk was terrible. I always, I always doubted myself. I always looked at, at what others were doing and felt that that was um, way ahead of where I was. And then if I watched, sit down and watch a video of myself doing something, I'd go, okay, that's, that's much better than I realised or thought at the time. And so from there, I, my sense has been for a decent number of players, and it's not all players, because some players are, are very full of, of bluff and that that's actually can be a strength of theirs as long as they realise understand that that's how they operate um that they they will they will limit themselves by by getting down on themselves very quick even uh, you know guys that striving for perfection is is wonderful and and it's great that guys want to improve but then it's it's they can be so quick to get down on themselves if they don't do it whereas actually they're still making progress they're still working towards their goal or what they were looking to do but they just don't give themselves a chance to um, to look at it with a bit of perspective and go, actually, you know what, actually, I've got better at that. It's not ideal, but I have improved from where I was where I started. And, then, and that, I think, that, that overpowers that. And, they, and they, then they, they go, well, I'm not very good at this. We actually know you're getting better at it. How good's that? And that side of it, I think, is, is that certainly when it comes to people um, limiting themselves, or they, they play the bowler rather than the ball. They play the situation or the, the context of the game rather than trying to take it down to what's the one thing that they, they can do. Well, I can give all of my, all of my effort into, into this one ball at this moment in time. Um, we spoke a lot in the winter as an example of that, of in T20, the pressures that we feel as batters or in any, in any stress, um, any field, but certainly as batters, we spoke about it. And he said, if you had a, like a red emergency button, that no one could see you press and, and it sort of had a 
had comms through to the dressing room, would you press it? And everyone said yes. But when we're out in the middle, we don't because our ego and our pride and our, our you know, we feel we want to be in control of it, doesn't want to let us do it. And then we do something rash and we do something that we, we walk back to the change room and go, why have I just done that? But actually, if we had had the opportunity to walk to the other end and ask our partner, what do you think about this? Or to have a, have comms to the coach or someone that you trust in the change room and go, oh, no, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And you, most of the time they're right and you reinforce it and they're actually OK, but they just need to trust themselves to do it. But they don't. And then we start, then they start. That's why I think they, we limit ourselves in, in all facets often. Um, so that would be my I've waffled a bit there, but that's mine. No, I think it's really interesting. And, you know, I had this in a recent conversation with, with Mark Robinson, who we spoke about previously, saying how much of a psychological game cricket is in terms of it is kind of me versus you, but then you've got another 10 fielders in the round and obviously there's pressure of run chases and all that type of stuff. And I think that's a really interesting point you make around people looking at, well, I'm bad at this rather than, I've improved to where I was two weeks ago, a month ago, two months ago, and it being a, a kind of evolution process. I'd imagine for your second team guys who are obviously looking to make that jump into the first team, be that in, in red ball, white ball cricket, a lot of your time will be spent on, um, I guess, trying to develop them to hopefully get them to the stage where they can make that jump. So how do you go around facilitating I guess one those types of conversations um, because it is a case of there's going to be self-doubt if you've gone from second 11 to first so you know like you said not limiting themselves but also them having a self-awareness of what their strengths are and you know if they do get an opportunity this is the way that I'm going to be able to play in order to solidify a potentially a spot in that team. Yeah language how how we communicate them as as coaches but also as, as players their peers senior players if, if we if we can communicate well ourselves then when we can use a common language that that the players can in their hearing regularly then i think they, they that will help it starts to starts to make them believe uh, and and that becomes norm i suppose have you got uh, any examples than, of that so we would um, we would communicate a lot with with Vinci, AD, um, Alfonso, guys coming through from second team to first team. So Tom Prest, for instance, who's come made a pretty quick climb this year from having well no second team last season because of COVID, and really going from I think maybe one or two games the season before to suddenly playing regular T Twenty cricket anyway. Um, making sure the messages that we, that Charlie and myself and Tone had used with him in the second team and in the academy, what, what we're looking for him as, as, as a player, how we're looking for him to play, that that's carried through to the first team. So that when he's, get, when he's in the first team, he's, he's not being asked to do something that's different. He's being reinforced in the, in the same areas of strength that, that we see him. So, so hopefully he starts to, he starts to hear Charlie talk about it in academy level, me in a second team level. When he jumps into the first team, he's got AD and, Jay and James Vince talking the same um, game plans, the same, this is, this is what we want, want from you. This is how, we, how we're going to use you in this thing. And he's, and he's seeing a clear transition there of how this is, this is me. This is my strengths. These guys know me. They're backing me to do this. 
rather than I suppose the flip side of that would suddenly to change change their role, change how they've um, how they've played and what's got them to there in the first place. Um, in nets, we would yeah, the second team is an interesting one. We 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 don't net as much as we play a lot of cricket, so we we don't net as much as as perhaps you'd imagine from a from a training and a progression of skill side. So the guys often learn a lot in game. So we spend a lot of time walking around the boundary with players where if, if they're out or if they're if they're bowling and they've you know, obviously got their feet up for a bit, just trying to pick up, get a feel for where they're at, how they how they've gone over the last period, their thoughts when it comes to the game game time. But when we do get training sessions, it's about what they're looking to get from this from this specific training session. So trying to get them to think more specifically about what their um, short-term goals are, I suppose, for, from a net. Whereas in the first team, you, you suddenly go to, to guys just wanting to get ready to play. And we're always looking at progression. And, and when you're gathering that info from the players, you're then feeding that info through to your fellow coaches, to the support staff from a, you know, whether that be physio, SNC, because you, you've got, you want clear and, similar messages coming back to them so it's a it's a lot of corridor conversations I suppose this is one of the things I've heard people talk about we don't necessarily sit down and formally um, review things and make sure that we're on on the same page a lot of it will be catching up with guys over a coffee popping in seeing AD and and those guys while there's a game going on maybe before we're training trying to see if they can come down and, and help out now and again and and you, you, so you have a bit of a, a smoother line of, of transition for guys if they're hopping between teams. Um, so it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's something that we we specifically have have outlined as a as like this is how we're going to operate. But I think we we try and keep comms to the point where both players and coaches are aware of, of where guys are looking to go with their games and how they're looking to do it. And so for when people are trying to make that jump, so if I, if I use the England team, for example, um, in, in the one day is currently you've got Jason Roy and um, Johnny Bairstow who opened the bat in, in terms of the figures and what they've done, you know, they're up there in terms of world cricket. So people trying to get into that role, that's going to be particularly challenging, but there may be openings in a slightly different role further down the order that may be different to what they would play at county level. I'd imagine you'll have the same challenge at Hampshire. You've got obviously James Vince, for example, who's captain, um, bats, you know, three or four potentially or opening in, in some of the T20. If you've got a young player to say that you're going to go into your number three spot if James Vince there is probably unrealistic. So how do you go around getting them one to identify that but then two kind of go well this role might not be applicable to you right now but there's a different type of role maybe at number six where you could have success because you've got the skill sets to do it well a really interesting point and and, and to some extent I think you you, you almost nailed it by at the end of the question there you, you it's a conversation with with the individual talking about their futures, their roles, or their roles currently, where they want to be and where those opportunities might lie. The tricky, the tricky thing is, is, is getting them to buy into that. But what you said there is that, well, these are, these are the options. 
you, know, you we actually see your skill set either being um, well suited to batting at six. You know, we know that you want to bat at three, and and you like your skill set for that. But we actually feel that there's, there's some skills there that can work at six, or you frame it slightly differently and say, well, you can develop skills at six, which we feel you're capable of, that can help turn you into a com- much more complete player. So you've got James Vince being a, a great example of someone who, who's at the moment would be probably MVP in county cricket for you ask other counties which player they would like most. And they've got, you've got someone like James Vince who plays in every format, is right up there as a batter in every format. He's a captain. He's a leader. There's, there's so much to like there. But you can actually sit down with James Vince and with Vincey and say, look, your T20 cricket. And you feel a little, I certainly feel a bit sort of sheepish for doing it. He's come off, he's won the big bash recently and um, man of the match in the semi in the final there, I think. And he's, you know, our best T20 player. But there's still stuff that he can evolve his game with. And we're not saying that his game at the moment is poor, but we're just saying, imagine if, imagine if you've got your strengths and your super strengths. Imagine if we add some stuff to this. Imagine if you can, if you can play a scoop and get it over fine leg. Imagine if you have a, just a reverse sweep to a, to a spinner. Therefore, they need to have two men behind point and you're so strong at extra cover that brings in, you get more bang for your buck when you hit it through extra cover. So you're, A.D. Birrell, who is our first team coach, I'd love to have played under him, but he, he talks about, about selling things to players. And the skill there is, is, is getting the buy-in. So that you turn, you turn something that we see as a need to a player into something they really want to do because they see the benefits of it and they don't, they don't feel it's going to take away from from what you know, their strengths—they see it as a, um, a mutually beneficial um, addition to their game, I suppose. Um, and that's quite exciting when you talk to players, and when you see the glint in their eye, when you see that penny start to drop, it's a really nice and rewarding feeling. You then obviously got to go out and do it as a, you know, in training and, and practice it. But that that first bit when you see a player go, oh, okay, I start to see that. Is, is really rewarding and the other way you can do it of course is to is to say if you don't do this you're gonna be knackered because this is this is this is how we're going to bowl at you but we, we've done that in the past where we, we take an analysis we will run an analysis of opposition batters for instance and now we ask our analysts to do it for our own batters and we say come the end of season review, or if it's something that we feel is more pressing than that, we'll do it earlier. But certainly end of season review, we'll sit down and we might not show it all to them, but we'll use it as some evidence to say, um, this is where we go. James Fuller was an example of that. He, um, incredibly powerful strike zone. You know, if you, if, you, if you pitched it up to him a few years ago, I mean, it was scary when we practiced in the winter, but he would he'd take you down. But did anyone bowl to him there? No, everyone stuck it under his armpit or into his chest because that's where he struggled. So he spent, a, well, to his credit, he realised that. He had worked that out, but we had the stats to, to back it up um, in terms of strike rate, strike rates for where the ball was. And he spent a winter doing it and, and now he's become hugely improved and that would be a, a hot spot for him in terms of, of a high strike rate. Um, 
so there's there's different ways of skinning that cat but it, i think the most important thing is as as you alluded to is, is getting the player on the side there's so when you're looking it <laughs> when you're looking at the um the actual i guess technical sessions that you're doing during the winter to try and improve on that area what would they actually be doing so if we look for example someone trying to um be more productive out of a pool shot because they're getting peppered with short balls at the moment what type of sessions what type of work has actually been put in over the the off season to kind of try and hone in and improve that area of their game um in terms of what we would actually do yeah um we would probably if guys have got specific technical improvements they want to make we, we would probably get them in a bit earlier we do a lot of group sessions through the course of the winter but we would probably look to work pick up a lot more individual sessions with, with someone who's got specific technical or tactical a- a- areas that they want to work on um and that would involve machine work that would involve sidearm might even involve really stripping it back and doing some underarm or throw work just to just to try and get basic movement patterns involved. Um, my, myself, my, my take on it would be I'd, I'd often let the player lead a lot of that and try and drip, drip in my thoughts as they go. Um, from a really pure technical element, I would, there's some areas where I'd certainly use Tony Middleton, who's our, would be sort of our batting guru. And technically I think is, is right up there with, with anyone that, that any, certainly myself and I know a lot of the guys have come or worked with or come across so I might go to Tony just to just to get some thoughts or to hopefully maybe a little bit of reinforcement for what my thoughts are but that's not always the case um and they might even actually work with Tony for some really really and you know use the video we were lucky enough to have a bit of um, a couple of lanes in the indoor school that have video that we can use just, you know, you can hit a few balls and then go in, rewind it, have a look. I think players often find that very powerful because they often don't see it themselves. And, you know, I've got six and a seven-year-old and they've learned more from watching the telly, watching other people do it than they have from me telling them how to do it. Um, So I think that that area of being able to see and trying to copy or trying to make the being aware of what you might be doing and what might you might not be doing that you think you were doing um, can be really powerful. But we'll often spend, a lot of it will be, will be drilling. And I know there's, a, there's lots of different thoughts on how best to, to acquire skill. And so that's been a fascinating addition to us for trying to work out how best to add stuff. But a lot of guys like the repetition. So you're balancing repetition with, with that variable training um trying to trying to work out ways for them to um work it out themselves i suppose work out the different patterns get their bodies do it do it for themselves before we before we come in and tell them tell them this is how it should be done if they can crack it before we get there then then that's that's the holy grail really um but often it's not the case because pros have been spent so long playing a pull shot one way that trying to get them to change it can be can be tough and and that that can be the hardest thing, I suppose, getting guys to to understand that it might it might not be a quick fix. This might take a while. And I, I guess something this is me observing from from the outside, and I could be completely wrong on this, but what you see at points is people almost completely change their like style. 
So if I look at like Labashine, for example, who all of a sudden became like a mirror image of Steve Smith in terms of the way he was leaving the ball and, and whatnot. I guess it's always a constant pull push for a batsman to say, obviously, I want to rectify this area of my game, which might need me to open up my hips slightly to then allow me to come through. But obviously this is then going to present more potentially LBWs or I'm going to nick off because I've got an open blade. So I'd imagine that's kind of a psychological battle within yourself and the technical staff to actually figure out what's the right way to go and how much reward's going to come from actually making these changes in a technical base. Yeah, spot on. Absolutely spot on. And players understanding that. This is this is what we're looking to work at. We're looking. Uh, so Joe Weatherly made some big changes two years ago, two winters ago. He he went actually and saw a um, another a coach outside our system, which is which is fine. It's absolutely you know it's great if you if you find someone that you click with, and we and we sort of roll with it along. When he came back to us, he would, he would go and see Gary for a few sessions. And we'd ask him how he was doing, what he was doing. We'd pick up, try and pick up, and, and build from there. And he had changed his game to access the ball to mid on and hit straight, play much stronger off his legs and, and then be very disciplined in the corridor. So that was sort of fourth, fourth fifth stump. He was um, prepared to let them come to him and leave the ball out there. But he found that, or does find that, that's quite mentally challenging. You're having to leave an awful lot. Your scoring rate can be can be held back. And and obviously you've seen Joe develop as a T20 player in the, this season, and he's come on leaps and bounds. And and now he is stuck between two stalls. And you know, I wanna I wanna access more balls from the offside, but in doing so, he's now he's now getting into his channel more, which means he's both nicking balls and and getting LB. His challenge this winter is going to be, okay, well, where do you want to take your Red Bull cricket? Do you want to be the player that's that's disciplined and grinding out runs and, and having to be super, super tough mentally and, and uh, disciplined in that channel? Or do you want to potentially be a player that takes takes it to the bowler more? But you've got to understand that that brings with it fallibilities that, that people might try and expose. We've sat down with guys and spoken about players over the last 10 years with records in county cricket. So you've got, I think it was Trot, Sangakar and Cook were the three that stood out. Jonathan Trot, high LBW percentage. And if you potentially use that as a, as a negative, then you start working with Jonathan Trot about how to not get LBW, you know, maybe hit straighter. But by the same side of that you're you're probably taking away his biggest strength and the one thing that was noticeable with trot was that because he was high lbw percentage it was like he he decided this is how i'm going to play i will get it wrong sometimes it's it's, that's going to happen but i'm going to accept that alistair cook very high court behind court at slip ratio like really high 90 percent and so well that's if that's how he's, he's limiting the rest of his dismissals he's he's confident in his ability to to leave the ball he's going to get out at some point I think the trouble comes when if you're Alistair Cook not that Alistair Cook would do this but if you're one of a Hampshire young player and you you see that you've been caught out at the slips the last four innings you start to do something about it without realizing that the great the greater perspective of it you, 
and then you try and go across your stumps, try and shut down your corridor. And next thing you know, you're getting out LB. As you, exactly as you said, it's it's just guys being aware of of the tweaks. Often, often it's nothing. Often it's just that that people are bowling well. Sometimes there is a technical element that needs to be looked at because because it's being exposed. I suppose that the general outcome is is what you're averaging probably with while these things are happening. But it's even that I think is tough at the moment. We've we've guys averaging 25 at the top of the order. Um, but in September, 25 at the top of the order is a good effort. If you if you're averaging 25 at the top of the order and it's a a you know, hot summer and, and you play most of your four or some of your four days in May and June during that period, then you might have to ask some questions. But certainly in September, you go, well, this is this is pretty good effort here. If those openers get through the first hour, that's a that's a win. But I've dig- I've digressed there. I, I think that you know from what you said about it's it's just the communication for me with a player about about what their method is, how they see their game plan, and is your method allowing you to to execute that game plan effectively, and does it need tinkering or tweaking to to allow that either the method to fit the game plan, but more likely the game plan to fit the method. I think that's really interesting because um, if you look from the outside, like Sky Sports uh, time, the analysis they're able to go into on the TV and stuff is really interesting. But imagine if a player was to buy into that all the time, it could almost be paralysis by analysis. You're just constantly overthinking. Whereas the trot example, I think is a really good one of going actually I'm going to get out 90% of the time it being LBW and I'm comfortable with that. And other teams may target that, but I know that's also going to bring me runs because there's going to be breaking points where the ball's not going to swing as much. And actually I'm just going to be able to clip things off my leg the entire time. I'm going to lead outside, outside off. And then you go, they'll, they might say, well, this is a problem. He keeps getting out like this. And he says, yeah, but this is the only way I'm getting out. I'm not getting out pretty much any other way. Um, and I guess that's a narrative that sometimes isn't always brought up during those, those commentary bits. Yeah. And there's, there's so many aspects to it. You know, the conditions, the bowler stage of the game, there's, there's lots of things that can, can come into that and you want to be aware of that as a batter. There might be a certain bowler that you have to be really, really careful about, about how you set up and you might slightly change how you're going about it about that that person because he's exceptional at exposing that particular um element vincey going back to, to james vince you know he they completely tore him apart didn't they for, for nicking off driving but you ask anyone that watches county cricket about who the best best cover driver of a ball is in county cricket there's a very strong chance that their top three would include james vince now the things that Vincey has to take into account when he steps up to test level or when he, you know, hopefully there's another chance there for him. But when he did is the angle of delivery because it got exposed a bit by left armors, the, the quality of bowler, I suppose, is a, is a part of that. So maybe he has to try and, try and hold that back for a period. The swinging, is it swinging today? What's the wicket like? What's the situation of the game? You know, actually maybe, maybe counter-attacking is, is the best the best thing for Vincey to do at certain stages, but there's so many facets that come into it. I mean, what's Vincey's confidence like? If he's, a, if he's in prime, if his confidence is high, well, I think you just tell him to play and react. 
if he maybe is is not quite feeling it that morning, then perhaps he does have to just hold himself back for a period and um, and say, well, do you know what? Do you know what, JV? I need to be a little bit more disciplined this morning because either I'm not quite feeling it, I had a bad night's sleep last night or I'm a bit sluggish or I don't know, it's 10.30 and it's September and the ball's nipping around. Um, you know, they're the sort of all the things that run through your head. And the tricky bit is that you hear most of us so talking as, as people, as a batter, is that you don't want anything going through your head a lot of the time when you're actually facing the ball or as the ball is coming in. But a little man on your shoulder doesn't have to chat away. And, and, and you know, it's just, we spoke about limiting yourself. And I think this the, the bugger on your shoulder that starts to limit you starts to sit there and go, oh, do you know what? I don't think you should do this today. Or this guy, this guy's doing this today. The wicket's going to do this. Well, he's bowling quick today. He might bowl bouncing. And all these things come in and stop you from actually being able to, to react. Um, well, a good, a good friend of mine, James Hildreth, he's obviously at Somerset and he, he said he was asking Ponting about batting and Ponting, they, they left the conversation a little bit, but, Hildy turned around and Ponting just threw a ball at him and Hildy caught it and Ponting just went, that's batting. I was like, oh, do you know, I quite like that. That's a little, little message to people. But how, how often we're able to do that is, is tricky because normally there's a bloke there going, you can't catch that ball, he's going to throw it to you in a minute and you won't catch it and you'll look silly for making, making a mistake. You put those voices to bed, I think you're already on a, on a pretty good path. No, it's really interesting. Sorry, I've digressed there. No, no, it's really good. Listen, I'm never going to bemoan someone bringing up someone like Ricky Bonton, so that's absolutely fine. So going to your playing career, you mentioned uh, briefly how you went um, away over a particular winter and with a different coach, and it kind of changed your mindset and then had some success after that period. So do you just want to talk through, I guess, what the decision was, what the... um, I guess the, the shift was what you did over the winter and then what that allowed you to do when you came, came back over um, and started playing again the following summer. Yeah, sure. So I went to see um, Giles. Uh, Giles White had worked with a coach in Perth called Noddy Holder. Um, Neil Holder, but obviously Noddy for obvious reasons. And, um, and Noddy had a reputation. He had spent a long time working with Mike Hussey, uh, Justin Langer and had had a, a pretty glowing reputation in, certainly in WA and and in Australia as a whole but he was based in Perth in Western Australia and I, I had no idea about Noddy I it was really on I was trusting Chalks and Chalks really felt that he might be able to help i had had a, a year in 2008 where lost real confidence as probably as close to the batting yips as as someone could get on your Anyone that's seen or had seen me play know that my feet sort of had lots of triggers, lots of movement. And I I didn't really know what I was what I was doing, where they were going. I didn't trust them, trust anything that I was doing, basically. And I, my my game had become a real grind. I my role was as a, a red ball opener. And the the fact that I lost trust in my method didn't help help with the fact that I struggled to really hit the ball. I struggled to do anything but that time. And so when, when my strength was batting time and being able to, being able to block basically, and that wasn't being married up with my perception of myself, you know, I'd lost 
faith in my ability to do that. It wasn't a very, wasn't a very good combo. I, by luck more than anything, I got a crack at the end of that season in a couple of, I think there were 40 over games at the time. And Charles just said, go in at the top of the order and, and enjoy it. Give it a whack. And I did and found a way. I got a couple of scores. And it, I think that started a little bit of a, a thought that, you know, maybe there's a bit more that I can access here. Went to see Noddy in Perth. And I remember the first thing he asked me, he just asked, he said, What's, tell me about your, your, your cricket and your game. And I said, I said, well, I, I think I'm pretty good at defending. or certainly I'm perceived as being good at defending. And he said, what? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, when I'm batting well, I'm, I think I'm pretty solid and I defend the ball well. And Noddy looked at me as if I was mad and just said, so you stop the ball. I said, well, yeah, I defend it. He said, no, no, you stop the ball. Okay, well, I'll let you roll here, Noddy, because I don't really know what's, what, what you're on about. And it's slowly but surely he, he spoke, and the way you talk about language, he spoke about hitting the ball. Um, you're there as a batsman to score runs. The fielders, and, and he took it to a real extreme, but he did it in a jokey way. But he, he, said, he said, so when you asked him to, I oh, took guard in the nets. He said, why are you taking guard in the nets? I said, oh, just so I know where I I am saying, but you're going to hit every ball, so you don't need to worry about the stumps. Then he spoke about the fielders, and he said, well, the guys behind you, they're there to watch you bat the slips. They're watching you bat. And the guys in front, they're there to go and get the ball when you hit it. And I was like, okay. And slowly I started to go, okay, I, I get where you're coming from now. But, geez, it, I felt, it felt miles away, miles away from where, what, I was, what I thought I was capable of. And part of my game, I'd that I was also struggling with was that I got, I got quite badly hit by Andre Nell, um, I think in 2006. And I'd always struggled with my confidence was low. Confidence was low. I struggled thinking about the short ball. And obviously my confidence was rock bottom 2008. So I went out there with a, one of the things I said to those, I really want to work on the pull shot and the short ball. And we spent all winter well, it wasn't all winter, it was half a winter. Um, working, or you, that was always a regular feature of what we did. And he just spoke about watching the ball, tracking the ball, and the positions that we got into, which were very different to positions that I'd always thought about. He spoke about basically fronting up to the ball. I was like, really? That doesn't, so my soft bits getting in the way of the ball, that's not going to be particularly pleasant. But he, he soon made me get past that and realise that well, I wasn't going to miss it. If I watched the ball, I was going to hit it. And he was very clever. He started pretty slow. He added, he called them variables. He added shorter balls. And then he went through all of those line and line and length. He went through that before he upped the pace. And, you know, obviously by the end, slowly building it, we, we got to something that, that I believed I could do. Um, and there were other elements to the technical stuff that he did, but most of it really was about mindset. Um, by, in fact, by the end, I would, I reckon I gained as much by sitting and having a coffee with Noddy as I did by hitting balls with Noddy, really. Uh, I certainly remember having one session where I, we didn't even hit a whole bucket of balls in an hour. And I'm walking out of there thinking that was a great session. Whereas before it would all have, all have been about quantity rather than quality and, and not really understanding that, um, how important 
my mindset was to to my game. He um, he was a great believer in in that sort of a choice. You know, you you have a choice as to as to how you approach something and how you turn up. So you get up in the morning. What am I, how am I going to approach today? Um, he loved that stuff, so we'd always be talking about that. And I think it slowly turned me turned me into into a disciple of his, really. Um, and I, it did make a huge amount of difference. I mean, my method was still wacky and had lots of pitfalls, but I, I think mentally, I was able to to cope with it most of the time. Um, that certainly wasn't always true, and. You know, there were lots of ups and downs, but I, I think I became much better prepared for for the the rigors of cricket and what it throws at you. And also, then at, at a similar time, as I kept, when we came back, we signed, and this, this is a bit of a tackle, but we signed Neil McKenzie, who was just an incredible player. And I remember watching him back, going, "Jesus, there's not much to Macca's method. Really simple, actually quite limited, and yet this guy's a genius." And it, again, it made me start to realise, I changed next to him for a number of seasons, made me start to realise how, how important our mindset was. I only ever saw him lose his cool once. He came in and I was really taken aback. So I asked him about it at the end of the day. He said, oh, it's because it was a, it was a mental error. And he, and I, he explained, basically, he then said, well, go back through your last 10 innings and have, have a real honest think about what's happened in those in the lead up to those dismissals or to in that dismissal and as soon as I did that I was like oh crikey yeah I've been and this is going I've been limiting myself here I, I hadn't seen the red flags that were that my the man on the shoulder was waving at me basically and if I'd been able to control those better then and I think I started to I started to control those better as over the next two or three years when I was probably performing individually at, at my best I had really good control over over what I was how I was going about stuff um, and that was thanks to Noddy and to, to Neil really they, I mean Giles was a big part of that because he he showed a huge amount of trust in in me taking me from a an opening batter that was barely averaging 20 to and saying look I think you can do this and that, do you think that's a, a cultural a cultural thing so i i look at for example again listen to commentary shane warne was on, on comms recently would discuss kind of what, what was happening with mo and ali or whoever else was bowling bowling and his th- first thought was always how are we going to get him out that's what he said he said that should be the first thing although yeah there's going to be limiting runs at points they shouldn't be just bowling to go, oh, I'm going to limit runs. It's to get him out. From what you're saying there, it seems like that's a shift from going, I'm not going to get out to yeah. I'm going to score runs and I'll hit the ball, which means I'm not going to get out, rather than your first thought being, I'm not going to get out. You look at someone like Kevin Peterson in the infamous Ashes. I know there was a bit of discussion around him or Graham Thorpe at the time. And obviously KP was very much a, well, now I'm going to attack you and put you off your line. You look at with Shane Warne, he would try and attack him to get him out of rhythm, et cetera. So do you think that's a cultural thing with maybe some of the South African players or Australian players and a difference to what we inherently normally have over here? 
Fascinating. Yeah, fascinating question. I, I think you could be right. I, I don't have any any info really or data apart from a bit of, you know, us, us probably thinking that might be the case. I, but I agree. I find it, I, I certainly would be on, my thought would be that's more likely to be the case than not. Um, you obviously know, individuals have different personalities and in the, in the way they look at it, but I think culturally probably certainly the Australians that definitely seems to be part of their, I'm going to, I'm going to get you before you get me sort of thing. I'm going to, and I'm going to do, take the positive. Warren was an incredible human being, you know, on and off the field, but on the field, he was, he was incredible. I, I, you know, so Why'd I, you I'm say a, that? Well, I mean, I, I've, I've been a, not not anywhere in the same stratosphere as Warney in terms of captaincy. But I, you know, you go on the field and you're like, "Come on, lads, we can win this." And deep down, you're like, "Well, you know, I've got to say that again." We're, you know, we're we're battling really here, and I honestly think that Warn Warn could see that. You know, that you know when you get the old win winometer, whatever they call it, and it's you know it's it's got the game as ninety percent to someone and ten percent to you, and you just like you know, Warn Warn saw that ten percent. And and didn't see it as ten percent. He saw that as fifty-fifty, or and he had this incredible ability to uh, possibly because he was so good, he had done it. He had done it, and he had proof. He had evidence that, that he could change a game, or that we as a group could change a game, um, mostly on the back of of him doing something. So that evidence was important because if you keep telling people we can do it and you never do it, well, you know, no one's going to buy into that eventually. But he. The way he said it, and so I do think there, there is a cultural thing there. Now, I don't know about us, you know, as whether it's Hampshire or England or whatever, you know, but that cultural thing must be important because you look at what Morgan's instilled in the 50 over team and the T20 team, they, 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 they have some, they've had some shockers, but overall they keep backing how they're going to do it, how they're going to go about it. I'm sure the way they talk about it is is in the same um, with exactly that in mind. I, I'm not very good; my memory's bad. But there was definitely a game where they got thrashed by. I want to say it was by Pakistan. Look, could be wrong. And they, and they England were chasing, I think, and got bowled all out for nothing. You know, nothing in a 50-over game, and. The commentators are there. Go, ah, oh, you can't play. Can't keep playing like Morgan wants them to play. Keep can't can't always go out there and bish bash bosh it. They need someone to to hold things together. And Morgan came out at the end of the game and said, "No, look, I can't fault the way of the guys for the way they've gone about it. This is how we're going to play. This is what we're looking to do." And that um, that backing from your peers and your leaders is priceless if you if you if someone gets out in a certain way and the first thing you do is 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 get the stick out and bash them for it then the chances are that they're, they're not they're not going to go there again they're going to be worried about getting it wrong and then that's limiting people if they get it wrong the first person the first thing we or i would do is is ask them look you get that ball again what will you do and they say, well, actually, do you know what? I'll play the same shot. And then it's just a case of execute it better. How are we going to execute it better? Well, we'll that's either practice or did you not execute it because you weren't fully committed because you were worried about 
the consequence of, oh crap, I can't get out. Imagine if I get out and I leave the team in the, you know, the duty for during this period, which I'm back and jumping here, which was what was so brilliant about Saturday when we were two down for nothing, we just lost James Vince to, you know, our best player and arguably, arguably on a big day, you know, our biggest, well, certainly our biggest, if not, if you're being a bit cynical, you say our only hope of a score, if, you know, Vince on a big day out at, at Edgebaston finals day, you've got two youngsters that, that really would benefit from having Vince to bat with. And Vince, he gets out, Presti's out not long after with three down. I bet I think we were two down when he did it, but Joe Weatherly came out and swept his second ball for six. And you see the guys going, wow. But actually, it's what we've been encouraging them to do all season. So, Joe, this is, this is your best shot. We've never seen, rarely seen you miss it. Take it to them, put them on the back foot. Imagine if you're the bowler running into bowl and they know that that's coming and, they, and you don't miss it. Be brave with it. And pwah. if you got out doing that, that would have been fine. Toby Albert got out playing a ramp shot. Absolutely fine. It's his shot. If he gets that away, we're, we're there going brilliant. We're not there going, wow, what's he doing? Why has he done that? And I think that, that becomes, certainly in T20, it becomes an absolutely crucial part of it because you have to play without fear in T20. But if you're, if you're not giving people that, that um, freedom to do that because you say, why well, have you done that? Then then they're not going to do it. They're not going to try anything. They'll just bat. And then next thing you know, they'll be, they'll get out for 10 off 10 balls and that's no good either. I guess, you know, at the top level in the, in the hundred or obviously where Hampshire are at the moment in international scene, you're working with skillful players and skillful people. So actually it's just enabling them to be confident enough and saying, listen, if, if that skill goes wrong, next time we'll work on you executing it better. Or if it was a different decision, look at that. But, we're not going to hammer you in the changing room. We're not going to hammer you in the press. You know, this is what we want you to do. So like you've got our back in to go and do it. Absolutely. And they, and they, you said enabling. I think that's a, that's a great word for it. And the other thing that comes from that, and you, and certainly I I didn't realise it until I got into the situation on how things have been, is is stuff that's said in the dress, in the changing room while you're, you're cricket, you'll sit there watching. So if someone gets out in a certain way and you just mutter under your breath or you say to someone else, oh, what's he done there? Why has he done that? Oh, that's... Then everyone hears it. So it's not just the individual that you pick up with afterwards. It's, it's those almost throwaway lines that become that can actually hinder or, or you know, help if you do it the right way. But certainly we're more prone to getting it wrong, I think, as, as coaches and players. And next thing, I, we we spoken about Warren. I remember sitting next to Warren. I used to do lots of 12th man when I was um, at the start of my career. So I couldn't hit the ball off the square, but I wasn't a bad fielder. And, um, and Warren would be there going, how's he missed that? What's he doing? You've got to be scoring this off this over. This guy's terrible. We should be taking him down. I'm saying, oh, my God. Imagine what he's going to say when he sees me batting. And, it, you know, it was... It, it, you know, I wasn't at that time strong enough in myself or didn't have the self-belief to be able to just brush that off. And especially when it comes from someone like like a Warren, who's, you know, everyone listens to. Um, so the, those things may be a reflection. Go, actually, you know, it's actually quite important that how, how we react um, during games 
or during practice, not so much during practice, but during games especially? One of the things, having done a little bit of research and picking up on what you said earlier, you mentioned around coming back and having success when you were when you were captain. So obviously there was there was a couple of tournaments, the Clydesdale Bank Forty and the T Twenty, where you made some good scores, and obviously Hampshire at that time had a real um, reputation for being very very good in white ball cricket. Um, with, with some obviously good good players in, in the ranks, etc. Was there any particular reason as to why you guys think you were so successful during that period? Uh, well, you touched on part of it. We we had a, a good group of players that, and the balance of the team was pretty decent. And the one thing that I've often when I've been asked about this, I think I think the role clarity was very good, and the trust between players to execute that was was very high. We we knew we knew what Dimmy would do when he took the new ball, and if it didn't go to plan, it was it was well that's that must be someone playing well. Therefore, we need to find a way to to manage this. We knew how Michael Lum would go at the top of the order, or Carbs would go. Um, and and you felt you felt that was the case for everyone. So you, you you felt really well supported and backed, but you also knew that if it wasn't your day, that it was likely to be someone else's. But that's where this probably the strength and depth of that group really helped. But I think the role clarity was really clear. Neil McKenzie, who was the glue during a lot of that period, I don't know how he did it because I think it's the hardest role in a, certainly from a batting side to be able to take games deep. And, I, and he did it early and I think everyone go, everyone went, yeah, he knows what he's doing here. He, he, we chased, this wasn't actually a white ball game, it was a red ball game. We chased a score at knots. I remember sitting down and guys going, what's, what's he doing? We need to get a move on. What's he doing? Can't, can't, we're not gonna win the game if he bats like this. And Matt was just going about his business. And I remember having to move, I couldn't listen to it. So I was there, well, look guys, we've had our chance. We, we the one we want to be out there doing it. But we've had our chance, and we've got to leave it, leave it to Mac and the other guys. And Mac got us over the line. He he, he hit a few boundaries out of nowhere, and, and we won the game. And I think everyone went okay. And that was the evidence that those guys needed on, for for him. Um, the probably the best example of knowing real clarity, or just knowing, and everyone just trusting each other was when we fielded. Everyone knew where to go and, and if someone went into a in, into a position that they probably shouldn't have been into that they, they, I don't think there was the ego to that anyone kick to stink about it and we got plenty of stuff wrong but we had had at the time Dimmy was was our white ball captain and, and his his outlook was incredibly positive so he would always encourage people to play play with freedom play to your strengths and slowly but surely everyone we all started to believe it and that and we had Again, this is chicken and egg. We we got early evidence of it. We got we got rewards, and we saw that what we were doing was going to enable us to, or going to take us to places that we wanted to be and, and to win games that we wanted to win. Um, I don't think there was any great secret to it, but we we were very lucky during that period. 
put myself on mute there. Um, okay. For you on a personal note, obviously you had some success on semi-finals and finals days, etc. How much was that a validation for all the kind of hard yards you'd put in over the winters and stuff to say on pressurised environments, you know, when ultimately trophies are being won that your mindset and the mindset shift that you had that actually you know you had evidence that it did work and you were going down the right path and you didn't need to listen to the little man on your shoulder so the, I, i'll probably contradict myself a bit here but it's not meant to be it's it so absolutely early validation um and those the, those things did help but they they often came towards the back end of of you know say the following summer i remember giles white i got 48 i think it was against worcester one of the first games of the season and we got 300 and giles at the end of the day i was just walking off and he just tapped me on the shoulder and said that was a really important innings and in the context of it it didn't feel i was frustrated i felt i should have got more i batted i think i batted till about three 30 and I think this is where I'm going to contradict myself so you know I spoke a lot about Noddy being positive and and the way he went about it now I was I was so far down the line towards you know blocker and so far away from being Noddy's ideal that Noddy just pulled me a little bit towards that so I didn't turn into this this maverick gung-ho gung-ho batter I had had success in white ball which is great and um, but in Red Bull, there was this really interesting, well, not interesting, depending which way you look at it. But for me, a fascinating uh, balance of intent with, with my core, probably values, but um, core role, which was to bat time, to be, to see off bowlers, to, to, try, and, to try and be there at, at lunch, to try and be there at tea. So this, in this game here, I, I got to, nearly to T and got out to 48 or something like that and was disappointed. But the fact that Giles went out of his way and said, that's really important innings made me go, well, do you know what? There's more to this than a 50 or a hundred or how this, you know, when, when I grew up, I'd, we, we always saw the scorecards and to get on the scorecard or the little highlights of the scorecard, you had to get a 50. So, I, yeah. And I've, I don't know whether that was was really something, but, you know, was, there's always something about those landmarks being important. And the fact that someone acknowledged something that I'd, that I'd done that hadn't really ticked any of those boxes actually was really, really, a really big um, fillip. Um, so that was evidence, but in, in a different kind of evidence, I suppose. So I agree completely. The evidence is, is really important. It's the hardest thing to keep, asking someone to trust their method if they're not getting the the evidence at times and and the nature of cricket certainly of batting is that you can do everything right and still not get a score for a, a run of games um and that's where it becomes tricky but but white ball wise i i was very lucky that we again that validation came through selection as opposed to necessarily I managed to hold myself in the t- a place in the T20 side when when I didn't think it would be. They dropped Neil McKenzie, which was remarkable looking back. Um, and 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 from that, I got a score in that game, and and that that went on from there. But 
I suppose that's personally, I you know valued the the trust and the backing of people, of peers, and of of coaches. So those those little conversations were crucially important. You know, they might not be as crucial to other people, but certainly for for myself, they were. And that was credit to Giles for reading me like a book. And you mentioned uh, right at the start, you said something about you became captain, and then after a, a number of years, you you found it challenging to and a little bit drained from from that experience and stuff so I guess first question is why um did we be why were you drained what aspects of it were you not expecting and I guess secondly off the back of that when you look at someone like Ricky Ponting for example who obviously was captain of Australia for a number of years I guess what number what level of admiration do you have for him for him to be able to sustain that role for such a prolonged period of time yeah, the, the guys that have done it for a long period, I absolutely hats off to them. I think it's a, a credit to to them as as players and and probably more importantly as individuals that their natures um allowed them to to carry on performing and carry on leading a group um in the way they have done. You know, how people did it many moons ago and Martin Nicholas did it for you know I don't know, a decade or whatever. I think mean, it's just mind-boggling. But even even Vincey now has done it for you know five, six years, and and how he keeps he keeps progressing himself in that role is is brilliant. Um, personally, I I found the I suppose more than anything, it was it was managing my own myself but also managing other people um you want to wanting to help people but then finding a tough balance between helping myself as well and helping helping others and and perhaps i at times worried more about about that side than i did about making sure that my own side was going and then of course when my own side started to slip then I'll start doubting whether I was the right person to do it because you felt you still need to perform. Um, it was, yeah, it was tricky. I I really enjoyed it, but I got to the end of every season. I, I asked Giles if there was someone else that he thought might want to do it. Um, and it was, it was maybe, maybe it was my ego wanting a little bit of reassurance. Just say, no, no, you're the right man, um, which obviously was nice. But actually, I think it was more than his. I, it, I just got to the end of the season, I was bushed. And after a month, I recharged the batteries and was good to go again. Um, just the constant thought process of 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 how to how to get the most out of everyone else, I suppose, and that that could be quite tiring. And certainly, there are individuals that are very good at looking after themselves, but there are also individuals that, that are quite high um, high maintenance, shall we say? So they that that probably in hindsight was one of the things I used to find myself get very quickly um, fatigued by by certain um, individuals and how and how they operated and that wasn't so like you know all the guys are good guys but some people require a lot more um, TLC to keep themselves in a good place and if you're the one that's providing that then that I've certainly found I'm quite introverted so giving giving time and energy or spending time and energy that that got burned away pretty quick um and then as i said then i, I, I might not 
look after myself in the way that I used to have done. And next thing you know, it was it was both sides of it were falling. I was I didn't feel I was spending enough time with the others, and I was also wasn't spending enough time with myself. I was like, oh, need a break. No, that um, makes quite a bit of break in the season. No, it makes complete sense. So, last question for me, and it it might be a challenging one, but who is the um, the best player or coach you've worked with or against, and why? Whoa. Um, oh, coach is really tricky. I, I really, I'll have to. There's so many. I've been so lucky. But if I was to say one, and I think because of the longevity of of my relationship with him, I suppose I'd love to say Noddy, but and he was brilliant. But I think Giles was the one that put me in touch with Noddy, worked that sort of help help with that, and obviously still someone that I, you know, I suppose work with my boss now. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe maybe I'm maybe I sort of but I, I don't I, I think Giles has been has been incredible really both from personal and and as a group he, he's been around for such a long time and I think his ability to manage individuals is is right up there he understands people he's he's always got time for people and I sometimes worry about whether he has enough time for himself and his family but I, I think that goes such a long way when you feel that someone's invested in you in, and they're then they're trusting you and they that seeing someone be genuinely happy to see other people sort of succeed um is 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 a very powerful thing i think to know that that someone's there with you and they're going to back you so giles would be would be from a coaching side and as a player that Neil McKenzie is is my sort of batting and playing idol. He was just he was just a genius. Just the way for someone that was and he'll I don't know whether you'll like me or not for this, but he really was limited. You know, he he had he had a low back lift. He, he didn't didn't power hit. He used to spend hours on the bus doing these um, forearm curl things with a with a weight on a around a stick going guys i'm gonna hit some sixes this is gonna help, help me hit sixes and he and he didn't do it for any other reason as to just to you know get guys to have a bit of a giggle really but he he had an ability to um empower individuals and again he's a very switched on man mac and i have a feeling that he he did know what he was doing he would come in and say, look, guys, I can't do this. I need you to do this for me. And it made that honesty and that vulnerability, I think, made us all open up and made us all realise if he was capable of doing what he had done with the, with how he perceived what his game, then we were certainly capable of of maximising our game or, or, or getting more out of ourselves. So the way he went about it was just just brilliant. And he, and he was obviously... You, you won't hear anyone who knows him say anything other than that he was the ultimate team man. Ultimate. I, he had proper um, 
you know, spoke about this with Giles, and it probably sort of it probably shows my values to some extent. But the time he gave to people was, I haven't come across many like him. So he'd be right up there. That's my little um, worshiping of Neil. Perfect. Listen, really appreciate your time. Loads of great um, anecdotes and, and information there. And yeah, just all the best for the, the end of the season and whatnot. Hopefully you guys uh, get over the finish line and hopefully catch up with you again soon. Brilliant. Thank you, Michael. All the best. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.